Goofy. Good morning, guys. How are y'all? Good? I feel like we just got like three mini sermons. I, I kind of feel like, hey, what's what am I even doing up here? This church is awesome. Just opening it up, letting you guys minister to one another is such a blessing. Thank you for sharing, all of you guys. Um, it's really precious to me how interactive our our community is. Um, and we pray for pray for more of that. You know, a church that that sees not just a couple guys on a stage as gifted or called by God to, to minister, or a church that sees um, every member as a minister, um, every member ministering to one another. So thank you guys for engaging in that. Uh, it really blesses my heart. Um, don't judge me, okay? I, I know you guys are judging me right now. I know some of you see my sandals. You're thinking, thinking, who is this kid? He doesn't even have a collar shirt. What's he doing up here? He's got a sin. Listen, if 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 I look on my iPhone and I'm seeing weather reports saying it's going to be 90 plus, it's wear your sandals to work day. You know what I'm saying? At least I didn't come out in shorts and show off my my awkward legs. That wouldn't be right. Uh, <laughs> uh, we are in Luke's Gospel. I'd like you to open. If you don't have a Bible, uh, raise your hand and, and the ushers can bring you a Bible. Um, but we're in, in Luke's Gospel, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 3. And we're going to read verses 18 to 22. I have a, a lot for us, uh, as you're probably used to. Uh, it's interesting. I actually preached on verses 21 and 22 before. Um, I did a whole paper in seminary on it. So I got a lot I want to share. I spent most of my time this week trying to edit down and, and make sure that it, it made sense uh, for you guys. Uh, but I'm excited to, to, to share it with you here this morning. Um, let's read verses 18 through 22 of, of Luke chapter 3. So with many other exhortations... He, uh, being John the Baptist, preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Could I ask uh, one of you guys to pray for us this morning? Just loud, loud and clear. I, I love hearing from you guys, so if you would want to ask God to meet with us here, that'd be great. Anybody want to pray? All right, let let it out, buddy. Father, we pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would be with us today. And uh, we pray that as Nick preaches your word, that you would open up our hearts to receive it. And that you would teach us how we can go and apply it to our lives and take it out and to do it through the rest of the week on into our lives. We pray, Father, that you'll be with Nick. 
Fill them with your Holy Spirit. Hmm. And let your will be done here in Jesus' name. Amen. Hmm. Amen. Thank you, Chris. I want to read you something written by a um, secular non-Christian therapist, okay, that I had to read one of his books in seminary, um, like a biblical counseling class. And what he has to say here, it was so profound to me, uh, the kind of the window that it opens up uh, into the human heart. I want you to listen in for a moment as he kind of discusses the, the counselor counselee relationship. And then we're going to reflect on it and um, get into our text. He says this, Very often, patients make it clear they are opposed to learning much more about the personal life of the therapist. In other words, they don't want to learn much at all about the therapist. Those who desire magic, mystery, and authority are loath to look beneath the trappings of the therapist. They are much comforted by the thought that there is a wise and omniscient figure to help them. More than one of my patients have invoked the metaphor of the Wizard of Oz to describe their preference for the happy belief that the therapist knows the way home, a clear, sure path out of pain. By no means do they want to look behind the curtain and see a lost and confused foe wizard. One patient described the Oz dilemma in a poem where he wrote of his desire to replace the drape and refuse to see the man behind the voice and forever follow that magic road that leads me to a place, no place like home. I know I read that through pretty quickly, but I wonder if you heard it. This guy, Yalom, he's talking about um, how his therapists, or I'm sorry, how his counselees resisted the idea of knowing him personally. And in the rest of that chapter, he talks about how they, they didn't want to even, like even if they saw that his leg or his arm, whatever, was broken, they didn't even want to ask about it. They didn't want... They didn't want to know about him personally. And we ask the question, why? And what he's saying here is that they didn't want to know about him personally. They didn't want to get too close because they're afraid that what they'll find out is that he's just as broken as they are. That the one they, they had put all their hope in, they're right now hoping on the other side of that, you know, that desk, and they're, they're hoping this is the one who could put me back together. And if they get into his life and they find out he's just another broken dude, where's their hope? You can't put them back together. He's just as broken as we are. If, if, if he is old and broken, how can he make me new and whole? And so I don't want to know. Put that drape, put that curtain back over him. I want to hope right now that he can fix me. This captures something of our own hearts, I think. Um, does it not? And I would, I would even press it further and say that 
the fundamental cry of humanity since the first moments after the fall is essentially, who can put me back together? <laughs> after the fall, it's, almost, it's immediate. I'm broken. This world is broken. Who can put me back together? We, 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 we're looking for someone, something that can make us new again. They can undo the old and the broken and bring in something new. We know we're broken people in a broken place. We know we need help, but we don't know where to look. And so, the whole biblical history gives testament to this. My life gives testament to this. We end up looking everywhere. Everywhere under the sun we go, we look, we're looking for answers to our question. Who can put us back together? And Satan just keeps throwing more and more answers at us. And these answers, I would say, are veiled with, with power or veiled with promise, but they're void of potency. In other words, they look great. They got that veil over it. It looks like, wow, this is the wizard. This is the one. This is the one who could fix me. Veiled with promise, but void of potency. You throw open the curtain and there's nothing there that can fix you. We go looking, right? And for a while, these these answers might captivate us, some of these things that are held out. And like these counselees of this, of this therapist, we're oftentimes reluctant to look behind the veil and see that, okay, this idol I'm hoping in is worthless. It's not the answer. We don't want oftentimes to look behind the veil, do we? Don't tell me this therapist... This relationship, this career change, this degree, this bottle can't fix me, can't make me whole, can't make me new. Don't tell me I don't get a restart with these things. I'm hoping right now in this. Let me hope for a little while. I don't want to go behind the veil and find out it's nothing feels good sometimes to hope, even if it's a blind hope. But these answers never deliver. And we would despair of ever finding an answer. In fact, most of our conversion stories are probably like that. Um, some of you were raised in the church. Maybe you, were, you didn't go after all the answers. But some of us, we went after all the answers. And we, we hoped, and that didn't work out, so then we placed our hope in this, that didn't work out, we placed our hope in this, and finally we got to the end, and we despaired of ever finding an answer, and then God in His mercy shows us not Satan's, not the world's answer, but His own. In our text, this morning, God is so jealous for us to see His answer to this question. And His answer, of course, is His Son, Jesus the Christ. Here is the One who can put us back together. 
It's interesting when you note the flow of those verses we read, how John the Baptist is just like ripped out of the scene, just just abruptly. It's over. He's actually still in the narrative that follows because he's baptizing Jesus. But it's as if Luke is highlighting and God is highlighting through Luke. Listen, it's no longer, it's never been about John. Let's get him out of the story because he has served his point and he just thrusts Jesus into the foreground now where Jesus will remain. This is awesome. Now we're just going to follow our Savior from this point forward for 21 chapters. I'm excited. But you got a feel for John. It's kind of sad. <laughs> He's been so faithful. But you know what? I mean, this is what John knew his life was all about, right? I got to decrease here. It's time for him to increase. The answer, the one, is here. God doesn't want us to miss it. Now, uh, I'm going to focus this morning really on the two verses, uh, verses 21 and 22, that deal with Jesus' baptism. And I've chosen an angle um, from which to come at these verses. I, I imagine even now I'm confusing. How does this relate to the baptism of Jesus? I've chosen an angle from which to come at these verses that perhaps isn't um, immediately evident to us. But I actually think it's one of the most fundamental and basic angles from which we can come at his baptism. There's a lot. There's so much you could say about this moment in Jesus' life. And and the things that are said over him, what it's symbolizing. And and we may or may not get to some of that uh, in later messages. But I want to take a real basic approach this morning, a real fundamental approach. And here is what I believe Luke is showing us. And God is showing us. I believe that uh, Luke has an especially pressing desire for us to see Jesus in this text as both the new creation of God and the new creator God himself. According to his humanity, Jesus is the new creation. He is the perfect man. But according to his divinity, he is the new creator, the perfecter of men. He's not only the one who's all that we ought to be, he's the one who will make us what we ought to be. And this world, what it ought to be. If I were to put an image on it, we could say that he is the pioneer. Jesus is the pioneer of God's new creation. It's as if we are watching here in this in his baptism, Jesus is going to set this flag in the ground. This world is mine. And from this point forward, this pioneer is going to march forward and start to redeem and recreate all things. That's what he's going to do. That's what we're going to watch. Going to put people back together from the inside out. That's what he's doing in your life. That's what he's doing in my life. He set his flag right here. Right? To put it simply, God's answer to the human and cosmic dilemma is Jesus. The fundamental cry of humanity, who can put me back together, finds its answer in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now again, I, I, I wonder, I'm sure most of you are saying, you're getting this from the 21 and 22, how in the world are you getting that? I, I want to show you, in order for me to make my case here, uh, we're going to do a little bit of 
we're going to do a little Bible barbell lifting, okay, for, for a little bit. Um, I, I hope that's okay. But in order to make my case, I actually have a few things that I want to tell you regarding the nature of, of God's revelation in the Bible. The nature of the Bible. I want to take two things, two kind of attributes, you could say, of the Scriptures. It'll help us see where I'm going here and how I'm interpreting it the way that I am. First, the Bible is holistic. You could choose a number of words for this. I just did my best. The Bible is holistic. Okay, Here's what I mean by that. Think of God as the author of the scriptures. Even though it's written by all these various people and all these various times, all these various places, there is ultimately one author, right? And this author, when he picks up his pen, it's as if he kind of, he writes in this moment with a view to all that's come before and a view to all that's coming later. In other words, the scriptures that we are holding in our hands, the Bible, it is not just kind of fragmentary notes from this or that place and God's just kind of scribbling down and throwing in sticky notes or whatever. He's actually telling a story planned from all eternity here. I've said this before, but whenever he's telling one story, he's always telling the story. Does that make sense? Whether we're in, you know, Joshua or David or or Adam or whoever, there's always this underlying one story that God is telling. It's, It's holistic. There's this unity, a coherence to it. So, the Bible is... Holistic, and we need to understand that. Secondly, though, um, in a different way, but still complementary, the scriptures are organic. Here's what I mean by that. They're historically conditioned. They're progressively growing, okay, developing. So when you think of something that's organic, you think of my garden, although the soil we have is not that good, so it's not really growing. But you think of things that are kind of developing, Seed form on out. People talk about the scriptures. Theologians talk about the scriptures this way, where it's almost as if in Genesis 1-1, you kind of have this seed dropped into the ground. And then through the Old Testament into the New Testament, Revelation, you kind of have this developing, this thing that's unfolding and progressing. So now you suddenly have this majestic, almost like redwood at the end. You know, where the, the latter parts still correspond to the former, to the earlier but now there's, there's maturation, there's development. There's more that you see at the end. So even though there's a unity and it's wholeness, you know, it's one, there's also this kind of unfolding progression and, and some diversity to its development. Am I losing you? Okay. If I lost you, we could talk later. To put all this together, and now you can see on the back of the handout I gave you, um, that might help you. I tried my best to give you a visual to to make sense of what we're doing here. But to put all this together then, as, as we approach Scripture... I'm seeing a certain kind of dynamic going on. There's this, there's this unfolding, okay? There's this kind of unfolding, but then this kind of gathering back, and then this rolling forward that's going on throughout throughout the Bible, throughout redemptive history. As we read it, that's what we're going to see. So what you have is what comes before kind of unfolds and sheds interpretive light on what comes later. And then that kind of wraps back around and helps us revisit the earlier things. And we see new things there that we didn't before. And then the whole thing kind of rolls forward into new, uh, new places in the Scriptures. And what we end up with is larger and larger, wider and wider vistas 
into God's heart and his mind. But it kind of develops slowly, gets wider and wider, clearer and clearer. That is largely how, based upon some of these principles, is is how I'm seeing what I'm seeing in Luke's uh, depiction of Jesus' baptism. Because what we're going to find is is as Scripture moves forward, it's kind of like this rolling wave of interpretive light. Okay, just kind of getting, it's kind of rising, rising, rising. And then it crests and just crashes, as it were, on the shores of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So it's just going to get higher and higher and higher. And then it just comes to crash down upon the sun. It's all been coming to him. That's why he would say in John 5.39, the scriptures bear witness about me. Everything rising and coming to me. Let me show you um, why I'm saying, therefore, that Jesus is seen as the new creation, the new creator, the pioneer of God's new creation here in Luke's baptism. If we're going to see that here in Luke, we need to see what's come before. In particular... There are certain elements found in this episode in Luke, 20, Luke 3, 21 and 22 that are largely present at other key creation and recreation episodes throughout the Old Testament. Okay? That's where I'm going to kind of get this. So when we start to see these different things in the Old Testament kind of creation and recreation episodes, what happens is the rising wave of these connections help us to interpret our text. And see what's going on here in a new way. So, let me show you some of these elements, some of these creation, recreation elements that are present here in uh, verses 21 and 22. So, come back to our text there and let's look at it for a moment. First, in verse 21, the first element I would give you is waters. Okay? You have John the Baptist, and we've spent time looking at this, who's calling Israel to a baptism of repentance. He's calling them out to the waters. All right, the waters of the river Jordan, and he's preparing them for the coming Messiah. And this baptism idea, it's kind of like this immersion into water. They're going down and they're coming up. They're repenting, turning away from sin. It's kind of like they're walking into newness of life. They've been cleansed and washed and they're ready for God. And amazingly, it's crazy. In verse 21, Jesus is in this line. He's in this line with the sinners. We'll talk about that at the end. He's there and he is getting baptized by John. He's going down into these waters. Verse 21, when Jesus also had been baptized. First element, I want you to see waters. Second element, I want you to see Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, verse 22, the first part. When he is baptized upon coming up, the heavens are thrown open. And then we read this. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. So the Spirit comes down. Jesus comes up out of the waters. The Spirit comes down upon him. Third element. There's a heavenly voice. 
It's a heavenly voice as we keep reading in verse 22. Following in the wake of the descending spirit is the heavenly voice of God the Father. And we read, a voice came from heaven. So you have waters, Holy Spirit, heavenly voice. Now the fourth and final element I would give you is you have sonship. Because when that voice speaks from heaven, here is what it says. You are my beloved son. With you I am well placed. He makes clear, this is my son. This is the one I I delight in. So, four elements. Waters, Holy Spirit, heavenly voice, sonship. Now, having identified them, I want to show you from the Old Testament why I'm saying I think all of this is charged with creational and recreational energy and that God in this is trying to say, here is the answer. Here is the one who can make all things new. Return with me. Um, <clears throat> you don't have to turn there necessarily, but in your mind to Genesis one and two, where this whole thing began. And this is where that image again might help you, because I basically am walking you through what I have pictured there. The creation. We go back to where the cosmos began. Genesis one and two. In the beginning, right here we go. This is creation at its outset, and it's it's insane the parallels, the striking parallels that are here to uh, what we see in John's or in Jesus's baptism. First element that we notice: waters. Waters. I wonder if you notice this, but actually waters in the original creation feature um, so prominently. It's, in fact, it's as if, it's as if the waters are kind of the curtain. That before the drama even starts, all eyes are on waters. And then from the waters things open up and creation comes forth. I wonder if you notice that. Let me read that to you in Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the whole creation is pictured as underwaters. And it's not until God starts to separate things. Day day two, He kind of separates the, the waters from the waters and creates the heavens. Day three, He separates the waters from the dry land and, and actual creation starts to emerge. So waters are a key creational kind of element. The whole thing emerges from it. Second thing you see, obviously, Holy Spirit. We just read it. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God is there on the first day of creation, kind of somehow mysteriously engaged in this process of creating all things. Third element that I mentioned earlier, heavenly voice is what we see next here. Because the heavenly voice pierces through the darkness, right? And and, and it drives the whole narrative forward from this point forward. Let there be light. Let there be an expanse. Let there be dry land. Let there be whatever. It's the voice coming out of heaven that is driving this this whole scene. Waters, Holy Spirit, Heavenly Voice, Sonship. 
sonship. Where am I seeing sonship? Well, what is God what is God doing in all of this? He's, he's, he's kind of climaxing to the creation of Adam and Eve. You and I. And we're made, how does it describe us in 126-27? We're made in His image and His likeness. And that, we know from Genesis 5 and other places, it's sonship language. Which is why, which is why in Luke 3, uh, verse 38, Luke calls Adam the son of God. Adam was kind of the first son, if you will, at least in this, crea- in this created order. Obviously, we know Jesus is eternal, but he's kind of imaging that into the world, and Adam is son. Humanity is his son. So all these elements present at the very beginning. But, of course, we know where the story goes from here. Because the initial creation unravels in a single chapter. We talk about this a lot, but it's it, it honestly informs everything that we do. Everything that we experience in this fallen world. This is this is why we're broken, you guys. It unravels in a single chapter. All this it was very good stuff becomes heartbreak in a chapter because of sin. And men find themselves exiled from God's presence and under His curse. And things are broken from that point forward. But God actually, Genesis 3.15, we go there often. He tells us, listen, there is going to come one who will put things back together. You know, he knows it's broken, but he promises one is going to come, this offspring of a woman who will, who will bring in a new creation, undo the curse, put things back together. And it's from this point forward in Genesis 3.15 that it's as if the whole story of the Old Testament is oriented around who is this offspring, this seed, this child? Who is it? We'll look at this in a couple of weeks, but this is why genealogies were so huge in the Old Testament. Where's the seed who's going to fix what's broken? We're all experiencing how how just broken and beat up this place is. Where is this child? Where is the answer to this question? Where is the fulfillment of this promise? So already at the outset of the first creation, there is need for and promise of a second. We looked at creation, the initial creation. Now, you might not even know what I'm talking about when I say there's other kind of recreational episodes. <laughs> what is that? Well, I want you to start to see these elements showing up again. And you'll see that God has always been kind of foreshadowing this work of recreation. This work that He's going he's to finally make things new again. And He's going to do it through His Son. But He foreshadows these things in the Old Testament. We go to the flood. We go to the flood, Genesis 6 through 9, and we start to see these elements again. But here's what we gather. We gather that humanity is looking for this promised offspring. They're looking, they're looking, they're looking. Who can put us back together? And this expectation reaches a high point, it would seem, with Noah, which is why he's given the name he, he, he is. 
It's, his name essentially comes from the Hebrew word for rest. And when Lamech names him, he says this over his son. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. He's hoping in Noah here. He's saying, that curse, maybe this is the one who's going to do it. Maybe this is the one who's going to bring in something new. That's Genesis 5, 29. And with Noah, amazingly, it does seem like God is beginning to do something new. He's kind of starting over again with everything, with land, animal, man. Let me show you. Uh, how the flood is kind of both a decreation, which is what we typically think of it, but it's also a recreation, which maybe we have not seen. Let me show you those elements. Waters, obviously, waters <laughs> play a big role in the flood. But because the whole earth was corrupt in God's sight, uh, Genesis 6:11, He, in effect, is unseparating the waters and the land. And he's bringing back kind of that deep, the, the, the surface of the deep and the waters. There. He's bringing that back over his creation. It's as if the original creation is receding back and we're going to start over. Because it says the, 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 the fountains of the great deep burst. And now all of a sudden it's underwater. It says that the heavens above, this thing he separated before. Now water's coming down there and water just fills everything in between. We are starting over and we're doing it with Waters. Waters. And the heavenly voice, the heavenly voice calls out to Noah, calling him out from this destruction, saying, listen, you, I, I, I'm going to save you. You need to do this. I'm taking you through, and I'm taking you into a new world, essentially. That's what you see in, in Genesis six thirteen through 21. And then the Holy Spirit. Now, you have to bear with me on this, uh, but I do think there is a case to be made that perhaps this, the Holy Spirit is symbolically represented in the dove of Genesis 8. And there's a reason, perhaps, why in Luke uh, we read that the Holy Spirit's descending like a dove. But anyways, we have the, this dove in, uh, in the narrative with Noah that he releases from the ark at the end of 40 days, right? And to see if the water's receding and if there's new creation out there, if there's land, dry land out there, we release the dove. And if the dove doesn't come back, I know new creation is here. The washed earth, we're starting over. And so here's what's interesting to think about. Um, when you go back to Genesis 1-2, what was the Spirit doing over the face of the waters? Hovering. It's a word used elsewhere in the, the, the Torah, uh, the law in the, in the Old Testament. It's used to describe birds fluttering over their young. So this, this, this is bird language devoted to the Spirit in Genesis 1-2. And it's kind of this bird that's fluttering over the waters and finding something new. Interestingly enough, it's the Holy Spirit that shows up in the form of a dove upon Jesus as He's coming out of the waters later. Getting ahead of myself. Waters, heavenly voice, Holy Spirit, sonship. Why am I saying sonship with Noah? Well, it's as if God is starting over. He's giving Noah the commission he once gave to Adam. He tells Noah, I wonder if you've ever noticed this in Genesis 9.1, the same exact thing he told Adam. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
Same commission given to Noah. Noah is the new Adam. Noah is the new Son of God. And yet, he's not the answer. We see that plainly. He is not the one who's going to bring in the new creation that we are longing for. He can't put us back together. Noah is not the promised offspring of Genesis 3.15. For even after the flood, and this is the heartbreak of the whole thing, you read this, you go, man, God is starting over. And then in Genesis 8.21, he says, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Still. But God, you we didn't fix anything. <laughs> and we watched Noah walk right into sin immediately after. He didn't fix anything. But he's starting to direct us towards the one who will. Not Noah, but one is coming. So we keep rolling on with the redemptive program of God. We keep looking for this promised seed. We keep crying out for an answer. Who can put us back together? Noah was not the seed, the offspring, but from Noah comes Abraham. And it's as if kind of the lens starts to focus in even narrower now on him. Because in Genesis 22:18, we read, God says to him, in your offspring, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So now, not only is it just from the woman who could be anywhere, and perhaps then from Noah, but now from Abraham and his offspring, we get a better sense of where this promised offspring is going to come. The promise is tethered to Abraham. And from Abraham comes Israel. And we would think, as we look at Israel, it, it, it honestly looks again like, like they're the ones who are going to usher in the new creation. They're the ones that are going to do this because these same elements start to show up again and we see God kind of making things new through them, it would seem. So recreation going on, especially in the exodus from Egypt and their entrance into the promised land, a new holy land in His presence. Is this a lot of theology for you? You guys okay? <laughs> no, you're not. Okay, well. <laughs> Let me show you those elements as they appear in the Exodus. The first thing, and I'm going to show you the order kind of in the narrative itself. The first thing that, that we see in the Exodus is the heavenly voice. God in the burning bush. The heavenly voice comes to Moses, Right? In the burning bush. I'm about to do something here big. I'm about to do something big here. And what does Yahweh tell Moses that he's going to say to Pharaoh? What does Yahweh tell Moses to go say to Pharaoh? Check this out. Here's sonship for you. Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. In other words, Israel is going to start to walk where Adam did, where Noah did. Now it's in Israel here. Israel is my son, Pharaoh. And I'm bringing him back home. And then obviously waters in the Exodus play a huge role again. Where how does Israel become a nation? How does his son start on their trek home? 
It's through waters. And the language in the Hebrew specifically is recalling the original creation and the flood for that matter. Because what you see is that God is making a way through the Red Sea. He is separating the waters and they are walking through on dry ground into freedom as His children. God is making things new, it would seem. And the Holy Spirit, interestingly enough, how are the waters separated? How are the waters separated by God in this moment? Yes, Moses' staff is there. Yes, it talks about a wind that, that's blowing back. But I wonder if you know the same word in the Hebrew for, 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 for wind is it's also spirit and breath. And later on, when, when Moses is singing about this wind that held the, the waters back, he says this, At the blast of your nostrils, your nostrils, God, the waters piled up. In other words, God breathed and the water separated. He's bringing them out. He's making things new. And we know that very similar stuff happens. I'm not going to go into this one, but in the entrance into the land of Canaan. After 40 years wandering in the wilderness, how do they get into the promised land? Through waters, you guys. Through the very waters that Jesus is being baptized into, just so you're aware. Through the Jordan River, they, the, the waters are, are divided and they walk through on dry ground into the holy land of God's presence. It would seem God is making things new now through Israel. And we are ready to follow. This is awesome, but Israel is not the answer. He is not the final answer. Or they are not the final answer. Because we watch. We watch. Their whole history is riddled with rebellion. They have that same heart talked about in Noah. In Noah's day. Just sin there. Just corrupting. And so they ultimately end in exile. And they find themselves all these years later in the same place as their forefather Adam. Exiled from the presence of God. And in their place of exile, they cry out with Isaiah. Crying out. Isaiah 64.1 Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Like, we thought we were on our way. We thought, new creation, here we come. Put things back together. God's doing it with us. But we're right back where Adam was. God, would you rend the heavens and come down? Now, I'm ready to get back into uh, verses 21 and 22. Now, I think the cresting wave of interpretive light is just starting to foam and it's ready to crash. Now we're ready to see that those initial elements I, I pointed out are charged with creational, new creational hope and energy. That God, as we come into our text, is saying, this is the one. Here is the offspring. Because God, in these moments, literally rends the heavens. We read, it comes down. 
Let me show you the waters now. The waters here in Jesus' baptism take us back, therefore, to the cosmic waters of Genesis 1. They take us back to that initial creation. And then they take us back to the flood waters that closed in on the people, the enemies of, 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 of Noah and God. And they take us back to the waters of the Exodus and their entrance into Jordan. These waters then, Jesus is kind of seen as going under these waters and emerging as the new creation of God. It was always creation through waters, new creation through waters. And now Jesus goes under the waters, comes up. New creation of God. Here He is. And the Holy Spirit, again now, charged with, with, with new energy as we look at it in this light. The Holy Spirit descends and rests on Him in the form of a dove. And we therefore have both the picture of the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters as God's first creation emerges, and then that of the dove which Noah sends out from the ark that comes to rest upon the new creation. You have this bird, Holy Spirit imagery now coming upon the sun. And as I thought about this, it's almost as if that dove that Noah releases from the ark back in Genesis 8 that we're told never returns to him. It's almost as if, and I'm just, this is just, you know, but it's almost as if that dove can be seen flying through the pages of the Old Testament and finally making its appearance upon the true new creation of God in our, in our gospel, in Jesus. And the heavenly voice peals through the heavens, indicating God's not done. God is doing something altogether new, and He's doing it now through His Son. Fourth element, sonship. Here's what we see. He is, Jesus is, revealed by the Father to be the Son, connecting Him back to Israel, my firstborn son, let him go, to Noah, and especially to Adam. Jesus is the second and last Adam. He Here in Christ are the headwaters of a new humanity. You see, the whole problem with Noah and everybody that came after is they were still in Adam. They still had his nature. And so they're still just as broken as us. And it's true, you throw behind the, you go behind the veil of Noah, you go behind the veil of Israel, and you see, not the answer, just as broken as us. But Jesus is here shown as the headwaters of a new humanity. Here is the quite literal Son of God, God Himself coming down. He can make things new. We gather from all of this, if I were to kind of put these things together for us in a sentence or paragraph, we gather from all of this that Christ is the new creation of God. He is the second and last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. He is the promised offspring of the woman from Genesis 3.15. He is our ark through the floodwaters of God's judgment, 1 Peter 3.21. He is the offspring of Abraham through whom the nations are blessed, Galatians 3.16. He is new Israel, Matthew 2.15. He is our dry ground through the Red Sea, 1 Corinthians 10.1-2. He is a prophet greater than Moses, Deuteronomy 18.15. He is the new Joshua, 
who went down into the Jordan and leads his people up and into the true promised land. He is, therefore, the the pioneer of God's new creation. And if you're doubting me at this point, we'll get into it a little more next week or two weeks from now. But if you're doubting that this is what Luke is after, all we have to do is keep reading in verses 23 through 38. Why in the world, why in the world does Luke go from this scene immediately into Jesus' genealogy? Seems an awkward transition, does it not? Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy. That seems better. Why here? Here's what I think is going on if we look at it. He takes us immediately from here into Jesus' genealogy. He's going to trace Jesus, the Son of God, all the way back through Abraham, if you look, which is where Matthew stops, all the way back through Abraham to Adam, the Son of God. He is showing, listen, there's another son. Where things went wrong in the first Adam, the first son, things are being made right now. Here is the answer. Here is that promised offspring. He's here. Now, we've got to stop and ask ask something of our text at this point. Why is Jesus here? Why is Jesus here being baptized among the sinners? Why is Jesus, this baptism symbolized a a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It symbolized repentance and a fleeing from the wrath to come. Why is Jesus, the Son of God, in line with the sinners to be baptized? Why is He here at these waters? What is He doing? One commentator puts it this way. He stands in solidarity with them now because He is to stand in substitution for them soon. At the last, He will do more than stand with them. He will be made sin for them. So you see what's happening as He's going under these waters. He stands with the sinner. He goes under with the sinner. Not because He is a sinner, but because He will die for the sinner. The righteous for the unrighteous. And this is what we start to learn about how all these kind of recreation episodes took place. After the fall, it was always recreation through decreation or destruction. i got to deal with the old and the broken, decreation, before I can make something new, recreation. We see it with Noah He makes his way into the new creation through the floodwaters of God's judgment. They kill the whole earth. All the animals, all the people. You see it with Israel. They go through the floodwaters of God's judgment. In the Exodus, they make it through into freedom, a new new promise, new hope. But the Egyptians are all dead on the shore when it's over. Judgment now. It is judgment that we have to make it through if we're going to get to new creation. And so what this means is, what this means is, before Jesus can be the pioneer of God's new creation, He must be the Lamb of God's sacrifice. If He's going to bring in all things new, 
if he's going to bring that in, he has to take care of what went wrong with the old. He's got to face the judgment himself. That's why he is the solution. These other guys, they didn't deal with the real heart of the problem, literally. They didn't deal with the sin inside of us. And that's where Jesus is going to go when he becomes sin on the cross and God pours out his wrath upon him. These waters, all that these waters symbolize throughout all these episodes, and even here in his baptism, it comes upon him on the cross, crashes on him, the wrath of God, destroying the Son of God, so that through the Son of God, we can walk forward into a new world, where our sin, like like Gary shared, is done, is paid for, it's done. You see, everything else that you're going to go after, to try to fix you, it's all cosmetic. It's all cosmetic. It's putting makeup on a corpse. If I get that relationship, if I get that job, if I get that whatever, I will be put back together. No, you won't, because the deepest place of your brokenness is here. And only Jesus deals with that. He is the pioneer of God's new creation because He is the Lamb of God's sacrifice. He takes the waters. We get the new world. It's crazy to think that in some senses Jesus is Noah. Jesus, or Jesus is like a type of... He's kind of the fulfillment of Noah, the fulfillment of Abraham. Fulfillment of David, all these other guys, Joshua. But in another sense, Jesus is the Egyptians. Jesus is dead on the shore. In another sense, Jesus is Jesus is the evil that God is washing off the earth in the flood. That's what Jesus is. It's crazy. So that in his resurrection, he could be the Noah, the real true Noah, the real true Adam, the real true. I want to end where we began. Is anyone in this room broken? Can I get an amen? (laughs) We feel it every day. I feel it every day. Here's where repentance comes back in, Jim. We're so prone, even now, as we're putting off the old man, putting to death the old nature, as it were, flesh. We're We're so prone to still kind of look to the solutions that the world holds out. And to hope in other things. And so we turn from it, right? We turn again and again, morning after morning. No way. Here is the solution. Here is the answer. But think with me about where we began. Anyone in this room broken? Is anyone desperate for the answer to the question, who can put me back together? I don't know what you're dealing with, but I know that you're dealing with something. And I know you're looking. We're all looking. Where's the Genesis 3.15? Where is that? Every answer under the sun is veiled with promise, but void of potency. It looks good, but it will let you down come payday. It will not be there for you in the end. Promises everything, but delivers nothing. The outside, oh man, this wizard's powerful. Inside, Just another broken part of creation. Amazing thing is God's answer. God's answer to our perennial 
cry and question moves in the exact opposite direction. (laughs) Hear me on this. It's not veiled with promise. It's veiled with weakness and foolishness. Doesn't look like an answer to your problems. Jesus is just a man going underwater with a bunch of sinners. He's just a man dying on a cross, condemned alongside a bunch of sinners. Where's the promise in that? So many look and say, weakness, foolishness. But it's a veil. And for those whom God is pleased to to open their eyes and take them behind the veil, they don't see just another broken part of creation, though it looks like it from the outside. They don't see a faux wizard, an imposter, an uh, opposer. They see the power and the wisdom of God. They see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They see the answer to their question. He looks like nothing. But in Christ, God is delivering everything. So the question is, where are you looking this morning? Hopefully I demonstrated, at least somewhat, that the finger of God, the one who is writing the scriptures, is on every page from the beginning to the end, pointing us to the Son, pointing us to the answer. All these episodes getting us ready to see Him more clearly as the, the, the pioneer of God's new creation. Finger of God, every page of scripture, pointing to the Son. He alone is making all things new, including you and me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Let's pray. God, that was a lot of work to get to one fundamental point. You are the answer. We're not going to find the answer in man. We're not going to find the answer in the created order. We're going to find the answer in our Creator and Redeemer. Thank you that you've taken the judgment waters of God for us, Jesus. Thank you that you emerge from those waters. Forgive the sinner. Heal the sinner. Save the sinner. You're putting us back together. You're making us truly human again. And in you, in you now, the second Adam, we find ourselves as well sons, children of the living God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.